We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is the Bob France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. Yes, indeed, it is. And a good morning past 10 o'clock on this Tuesday, the 14th morning of the fourth month of the year of our Lord, 2020. Thanks again for being with us. And uh, coming up uh, on tomorrow's program, you're not going to want to miss this. We have Governor Mike DeWine scheduled live for this time, 10-10 tomorrow. And we're going to get into all of the things, why orders were given, what models they were based on, whether or not they need to continue, what are the plans for reopening, how will the Ohio economy uh, rebound, rebound from all of this, what specific plans does the state have in order to help Ohio business owners and employees, et cetera, et cetera. We have a lot of ground to cover with Governor Gro- Governor DeWine tomorrow. You're not going to want to miss that show. Uh, joining us now is another person you never want to miss. He is, of course, Peter Kersenow. Peter Kersenow is a Cleveland attorney, member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights, a best-selling author, and he's the host of the Kersenow Report as well on AM 1420, The Answer. Peter, good morning, my friend. How are you? Bob, doing pretty well. 146 days until we open up against the Ravens. It better be no more than 146 days. we got to get back to the business of being Americans. Yeah, you're uh, you're hundred percent about hundred uh, percent right about that, Pete. Let's let's talk about getting back to being Americans. Let's talk about getting back to work. Let's talk about uh, pushing past this um, uh, this state that we are in right now. I've got two different levels to talk to you about this. One is the federal level. One is the state level. I'm going to start with the federal level. Uh, Tucker Carlson last night, uh, I know you're very familiar with the show, even though you didn't see last night's, as I asked you, because you've been a guest on that show numerous times. But Tucker's monologue last night was spot on when he pointed out that the reason all of these shelter-at-home orders were given by governors all over the, sta- uh, all over the country was to, quote-unquote, flatten the curve, to make sure that we didn't overwhelm the health care system. That's what this was about. It's about not overwhelming the system. We have to flatten the curve. 
We have done that. Virtually every state other than New York, and even New York, uh, Governor Cuomo said we're past the worst time, we believe. You know, it's, it's, it's not going to get any worse than it has. It's getting better now. But we have indeed flattened the curve. Here in Ohio, we have flattened the curve very clearly. But now they've moved the goalposts and said, we can't go back to work until we crush the curve, until we destroy the curve, until we have a, a situation in which virtually nobody contracting the virus. That is a very different reason for closing down our businesses than they gave when they said we just have to make sure the healthcare system is not overwhelmed. And the state of Ohio, for example, is not overwhelmed. There are over 13,000 empty hospital beds, over 1,000 ICU beds in the state not being used. People are being furloughed because healthcare workers in some hospitals aren't even needed because they're not doing elective surgeries anymore. The hospital system is not overwhelmed in the state of Ohio, and I suspect it's that way in a lot of other places. Therefore, why are they moving the goalposts to, well, now we just have to make sure that nobody gets it before we'll open up the doors again? I think uh, there are several reasons why they're moving the goalposts, and I think part of it is because the media has moved the goalposts. Uh, you and I have talked about this before. This is very peculiar, and one of the things I hope, and I know you'll ask DeWine, is has he made any adjustments or recalibrations from the wildly incorrect models that they fashioned their policy on at the very beginning. I mean, they were so far off. I still say, as we, as we talked last week, we are still at the level of a severe flu season. That's what this has amounted to, and you're precisely right. The overall objective was to flatten the curve so the healthcare system would not be overwhelmed. Mission accomplished. This is a serious disease, but we're taking it seriously, more than seriously. So now what we're doing is we're doing, as President Trump accurately said, the cure now is starting to get worse than the disease itself in many respects, not from a standpoint of a horrific uh, medical perspective or health perspective. People are dying, but there are ancillary downstream effects that we've talked about, and it doesn't seem as if our government, whether at state, local, or federal level, is a adroit enough, is agile enough to adjust for the original wildly inaccurate estimates that they've had. Now we no longer have models. We've got data. Data far exceeds models. And, and the data in almost every respect, and I know you've seen some of this, this data, in almost every respect shows that we are so far undershooting the initial projections that certain significant recalibrations need to be done. Again, um, I think that it's, you asked the original question, why is this? I think a couple reasons. One is, I think there's a political imperative for a number of state and local officials that they'd rather overshoot than undershoot because you're less likely to uh, have a political downside if you lock things down and there are fewer deaths. Deaths are something that capture everybody's attention immediately, more so than the economy does. But now the economy has gotten to the point where it has gotten, if it's not at least equal attention, you're getting more and more people chattering about this stuff, recognizing that we are doing extraordinary harm to the economy. So again, from a political imperative, at least initially, it was better to overshoot than undershoot. And they had really bad data. Um, the other thing is, again, it's the media, and you know, I hate to say this because it sounds like the obverse of Trump derangement syndrome, but it's apparent. So it has to be said, and it has to be said more often, and that is after an initial kind of getting their bearings um, 
uh, moment. The media now have been not reporting news. They've been attacking Trump. They've been doing this from a political imperative. And also because, as we know with the media, if it bleeds, it leads. This is a twofer. It bleeds, it leads, and they can attack Trump because they distort things and they lie about things. So I think mm-hmm. that, in large part, is what's driving this, and it's hurting the country. We're not making clear-eyed policy decisions as a result. As you said, we're losing sight of what the initial objective was, and every, a lot of people are being harmed by this. Uh, we have to recognize what the perspective, what context, what proportion is with respect to this pandemic. And almost in every country where... Uh, we've had significant outbreaks. The curve is being flattened. The initial models were wildly inaccurate. And it's time for a leadership. Again, let me back up for one more second. Excuse me on this. There is, um, I think, almost a inexorable uh, inclination on the part of any politician, regardless of what their ideology is, to assume power. Unfortunately, founding fathers recognize that and they try to limit the power of government. But individuals are such that they will try to assume more power than that to which they've been dealt than that which they've been delegated. That is a natural human tendency. And I think you you, you look at the an egregious example, the governor of the state of Michigan, who is doing some of the dumbest things. But in addition to that, some of the things that are so incredibly overreaching, I think it's because, number one, she likes the power, as most people do. And number two, she's dumb. She really is dumb. Agreed. I mean, she may have degrees, everything else, but that doesn't. Let me, degrees don't confer intelligence. Let me jump in on this because uh, since we're talking about individual power and how that power is delegated constitutionally, we have to talk about what the president said yesterday. Now, the president tweeted this yesterday, and he stated this yesterday uh, at the press conference. His, state, uh, his statement at the press conference was, quote, when somebody is president of the United States, their authority is total. And that was in response to the question about opening up the, the, the businesses in this country for, for business, opening up the economy again. Jonathan Turley, as you know, a law professor at, con law professor at Georgetown, uh, said that the Constitution was written precisely to deny that particular claim. And it is also reserved, it also reserved to the states and individuals rights not expressly given to the federal government, which um, is the Tenth Amendment. President Trump essentially said, when I decide we're opening things up, every governor must do so because my authority is total. I don't think that's correct. Constitutionally, I asked you about this. Uh, you don't either, um, unless there is a state of national emergency declared. Now, some people are uh, calling off the air today and saying he did declare a state of national emergency. That was over the coronavirus that allowed, of course, federal funds to be used to be sent to states and other resources in order to fight the coronavirus. Um, still, seven states did not declare any kind of shutdown, any kind of a, a shelter-in-place or anything else. So explain to everybody um, the, Constitu- the Tenth Amendment and the constitutional authority given to the president uh, versus states' rights given to governors to decide how they operate their own economies. Sure. Um, well, Turley's right, and so are you. And the limits aren't simply enumerated in the Tenth Amendment. They're profuse and strewn throughout the Constitution um, and throughout the jurisprudence related to the Constitution. Uh, the President's comment was both factually, legally, 
and politically wrong. Uh, it was a political mistake on his part because, and I, and I think he meant it in good faith because he wants what's best for the country, but nonetheless, uh, for him to have said that, uh, watch, in, in the fall, the Democrats are going to run with this, that his power is total, because they've always tried to uh, portray him as kind of this guy who's uh, got an outsized view of his own uh, uh, powers and that uh, he has unlimited authority, that he's some type of a monarch. First of all, there well, are hey, the Pete, hey, Pete, before you continue, just on, on the political part, what you just said, right now, trending on Twitter are the phrases King Trump and Dictator Trump. For exactly that reason. They are already yeah. running with this, and you're right. That's why politically it's a really bad thing to say, and I'm hoping he walks that back today. Yeah, I hope, I hope he does, too, from a political standpoint. From a legal standpoint, he doesn't have the power. Even in, even in a national emergency, the national emergency does not abrogate the Constitution. He has, it doesn't give the government powers it never had, no new powers. What he can do, though, is exercise certain statutory powers that uh, are invoked at a time of emergency. Look, there is considerable jurisprudence on this. Uh, the more recent cases, for example, NFIB versus Sebelius, the Obamacare case, You've got the famous for all your law students out there, Youngstown Sheen Tube versus Sawyer. You've got uh, Wickard versus Filburn going all the way back to the, the uh, uh, Great Depression. For all those who don't care about those cases when you care about the Constitution, essentially what it says is we are a nation of limited or a government of limited powers, and especially at the federal level. The federal level, the government can't simply intrude on the state and local prerogatives. We have not just separation of powers, but we've got a hierarchy of, of uh, governmental authorities. The police powers are invested in the state, not the federal government. Now, admittedly, I can't give you in 10 minutes entire exegesis on the Constitution and the powers that are reserved to various organs of the government. But suffice it to say that the president was wrong because the federal government has very limited powers. He can act within the statutory confines of power given to him by Congress, for example, to act in interstate commerce is probably where his powers are broadest. If, for example, the state uh, edicts, mandates, orders with respect to shelter in place have an effect on interstate commerce. And believe me, that's going to be, that's somewhat difficult to show, although, you know, depending upon which court you get to, you may be able to do it. But if it does have an effect on interstate commerce, if, for example, the Michigan government said, governor said that um, you can't travel to another state, uh, that affects interstate commerce. Truckers can go to another state, that affects interstate commerce. The president could weigh in on that. But if it's something that is truly a local or state concern, his powers are extremely limited. Now, having said that, Okay. Understand that the president has... I'll, I'll let you go to a break, Bob, and I'll come back at the other side. Yeah, that, I was going to say, having said that, we need to say this. Uh, finish that thought on the other side of this timeout. 1022, Peter Kirsten and I will finish that point and more coming right up on AM 1420, The Answer. All right, 1025 now, we continue with a constitutional lesson on the separation of powers or enumeration of powders, uh, powers. As the president uh, discussed yesterday, uh, issuing a national order saying the, the authority is all his to tell states when to open up their businesses. And as Pete was just saying, constitutionally, that is not accurate, and politically, it's a bad idea as well. Pete, pick it up where you left off. Sure. While his powers are very constrained, uh, even in a national emergency, the state powers are less constrained when it comes to health and safety. In fact, that's where their powers really reside. 
So governors do have considerable authority to issue these types of edicts, but no matter whether it's federal, state, or local, no government, whether in an emergency or not, has the power to abrogate constitutional rights. Now, there could be certain suspensions of rights for a moment. For example, you always have a right to due process, but it may be ordered in such a way so the government can address an emergency immediately. Due process means notice and right to a hearing, for example, okay? Well, the right to a hearing may be postponed a little bit because there's an immediate need that needs to be addressed by the government, but it can't be completely extinguished, meaning the right to notice of hearing. So you always have those rights. You know, there have been you know cases where there have been attempted suspensions of habeas corpus. There are certain things that the government is permitted to do in national emergencies, but they can't completely abrogate your constitutional rights. But what can happen? Here's what Trump can do, and it's considerable. While he, his power is not total, and he can't force states, for example, for, when you talk to Governor DeWine, for example, he can't tell Governor DeWine, you know, rescind your shelter-in-place order. He can't tell him to open up businesses. He cannot do those kinds of things. But, as you know, he has two things. One is the bully pulpit. That is significant, okay, especially when he's got facts and persuasive argument on his side. Very, very significant. And he said something similar to that yesterday when he said, uh, you know, I'd like to see the person who will run for re-election after he decides not to reopen. Um, So, you know, that's true. But number two is the power of inducement. Some would say power of bribery. Because the president does have the authority to dispense certain funds or provide certain benefits to states, those inducements can persuade states to go along with what he wants. Now, he really needs the cooperation of Congress if he wants to do it effectively, but Congress has already allocated certain monies that he has the ability to distribute or uh, use with surgical precision in a way to alleviate the uh, effects of this pandemic. So he could use that. Now, there's political pushback from that, but, you know, that's why the Founding Fathers set it up this way. They understood that there were certain things that were left to the the uh, sways of policy and politics. Mm-hmm. So to answer your question, no, the president is is completely wrong where he's got the authority to order these shelter-in-place orders to be lifted or force businesses to open up or anything of that nature. Number two, though, is he's got considerable power in terms of the inducements he has available to him to get these various state and local governments to sing his tune, so to speak. Yeah, the um, boy, the difficulty in this, the political side of it is is large, though. Um, I'm glad, by the way, that the president said, I will work with the governors, because that's the way it ought to be. I will issue them some guidance. This is what I think should happen on a national level. This is what you guys need to do in your states to get things going, blah, blah, blah. Work with them rather than say, I'm going to dictate to them. And I think that's uh, that's a fair thing to do. Um, but no matter what he says and how he say, he says it, it's going to be covered by the press unfairly. And to that, I want to just kind of get your quick thoughts. I only have a minute and a half in the segment left uh, on the press. Yesterday, one reporter actually asked Dr. Fauci when Dr. Fauci tried to clarify the remarks about uh, people's uh, lives being lost because the president may not have acted soon enough. Uh, actually asked him if he was being forced to say that. She said, is this voluntary? And worse off, uh, the reporters who seem to forget that the role of a reporter is to ask a question 
of the person holding the press conference, note the answer, and then report that answer back to their viewers, readers, or listeners. Instead, they think now that it is appropriate journalistic behavior to argue with the President of the United States, to argue him about his answers, argue with him, to talk back to him, to interrupt him, and to just completely turn this into a a free-for-all shouting match between themselves and the President of the United States. When did we lose all semblance, Peter Kersenow, of journalistic integrity? Well, I think it was in November of 2016, but it preceded that. We've seen this for a long time. Those of us who've been around for a while saw the gradual drift. Well, the press is always tilted slightly to the left, always. Uh, but that it's no longer slight. It's well beyond the Leaning Tower of Pisa would have fallen over by now. So we have got, um, as some people say, uh, TDS Trump derangement syndrome that afflicts the press probably more than any other institution. And it's gotten to the point where we are in the midst of a pandemic and we're getting bad, really bad information. The reason we're getting bad information is, as I said at the outset, some of these models are flawed, but also the conveyor of information is so biased that they actually endanger the public. That's not an exaggeration. Because, for example, they keep debunking something that Donald Trump said that can help, such as using hydroxychloroquine. There have been a number of studies that show that it has very good salutary effects. Well, I've got a lot of reports on that today, too, yeah. Sure, but they keep saying it's unproven and Trump is doing this and that and the other thing is dangerous and they come up with that uh, story about the fish tank cleaner. It's, it's outrageous what they are doing. You never hear from them, for example, Mr. President, is there something else that we can get to the public? We are in, in the midst of a national emergency and yet the press is doing everything they can to prevent the president from addressing that emergency. It's extraordinary. And also, they're in the midst of a pandemic. I'm not saying there shouldn't be any criticism. There's always going to be criticism, okay? But the problem is, in the midst of a pandemic, they're focused on thwarting the president and making him look bad, as opposed to helping the nation as a whole deal with this pandemic in a rational, scientific-based fashion. Which, by the way, is exactly the next part of our discussion, and that is the video that he played, the three-and-a-half-minute video during the press briefing yesterday that they went crazy over, and there's a reason why it was important to play that. It is about helping the nation. I'll explain more and ask your thoughts on that as we continue, Peter Kirsten, now right after this. Okay, 1037, we continue now at AM 1420, The Answer. One more segment with Peter Kersenow on this Tuesday edition. And Pete, we're not going to talk about this so much as maybe just get a chuckle out of it. That's another issue. But we're going to finally achieve comprehensive immigration reform as well, put millions of citizens on a pathway to citizenship. Uh, just, uh, <laughs> just because... Uh, Joe Biden accepting Bernie Sanders' endorsement, talking together about how they're going to um, uh, erase America's borders and uh, uh, allow millions of illegal aliens to uh, to get uh, citizenship. Well, I'm sorry to get to allow millions of citizens to get citizenship. So just, I just okay, just, just had to throw that out there. All right, Pete. Um, I guess we can chuckle over this too, but I do need some serious analysis from you on this too. Yesterday during the press briefing, President Trump sought to counter. Uh, the constant barrage, hours and hours and hours every single day on the mainstream media networks, uh, lies about the timeline, about who knew what and when, as far as the seriousness of the coronavirus, uh, about whether or not Trump followed the advice of the doctors or wh- whether he went rogue and off on his own. All of these kinds of things have been going on constantly. Uh, 
So yesterday, the president sought to clear his name just a little bit and to tell everybody watching at home, and yes, the handful of pool reporters in the press room yesterday, the truth about what the media has said versus what the reality was. And immediately the left went crazy calling this a campaign ad calling this uh, free campaign ad uh, that he uh, used uh, all of the networks to carry free of charge. He had it produced by the task force members, which means these are taxpayer dollars producing this thing to help his campaign. They're calling it a campaign ad. Pete, I see this as a very necessary response to help restore American, the American people's faith in their leadership. The press undermines his authority and his competence daily, and that cannot be allowed to go unchallenged. If the people don't have faith in their leadership... That's going to create more panic. That's going to harm our society. That video yesterday, three and a half minutes of correcting the lies, I think helps restore belief in leadership. That's not a campaign ad. That is a a, a part of the healing and a part of the leadership of this country. I, I couldn't agree more, actually, and I think more of that's needed. And one of the things, and from just from a satisfaction and political um, standpoint, um, I know, having spoken to so many of your audience members, that one of the things they like about this president is that he fights back. And previous Republican presidents always stayed in the lanes that were crafted for them by the media and Democrats, but I repeat myself. And this president fights back. And what the previous Republican presidents, all due respect to them, forgot is it's not simply an attack against them individually as the Republican president, but it's an attack on their supporters and sometimes more broadly on the entire institution of of government, of federal government, when it's in the hands of Republicans. I think it was imperative as uh, an educational tool. Would I wish that it wasn't necessary? Absolutely. But the pre- the, we are in such weird times that the press made it necessary. Now, we can have a disagreement on that as to whether or not, you know, this was something, this is the way to approach it. But it was informative and instructive because we are getting so much bad information from many quarters, but predominantly from the press that's supposed to provide us with good, unvarnished information at a time when we are in a crisis. I think we're more in an economic crisis at this point than we are in a health crisis, but it's both. The press nonetheless has abdicated to a large extent, abdicated their primary function, decided to become a political organ for one ideology or political party. And it's harming the ability of Americans to address and assess the situation accurately. An example is, you're going to talk to Governor DeWine tomorrow. And one of the things that I want to know from so many different leaders in government is, why are they failing to make the appropriate calibrations and adjustment to new information? And they're doing so egregiously. We're getting new information, but they seem to be frozen in the initial model of, you know, this is going to have gazillion deaths. I know that's a technical term, gazillion, but it's going to have all these deaths. Remember DeWine's original model with respect to 100,000 in the state of Ohio. Yeah, different different uh, uh, states having 74,000 in Minnesota is the one that jumps out at me, uh, but they're so off, and as Tucker indicated, and you just indicated also, the whole purpose of all these shutdowns was to make sure our medical systems weren't overwhelmed, and it's just the opposite now. Because elective elective surgeries and a lot of other things have been postponed, people aren't going to the physician's office because they're petrified. Uh, You know, there are places that are laying off individuals, closing facilities down, so they have gone to the opposite end of the spectrum and aren't adjusting for it. So a lot of that is a function of the hysteria driven by a media that is falsely reported 
reporting or failing to report essential facts. That's why, again, long explanation to say, I think what Trump did is it's satisfying for many of us right-wing cranks, obviously, but it's also, I think, helpful for getting the narrative correct because precision in a time like this is imperative. Peter, uh, let me uh, pivot back a little bit to the decision to close or or, or when to reopen, rather, uh, the, the businesses and uh, and free the people, if you will. I read a really great piece yesterday from Daniel Horowitz at Conservative Review, which uh, underscores a lot of very strong evidence that the shelter-in-place slash stay-at-home orders we've been given is more harmful than helpful in the fight against coronavirus. Um, looking at CDC studies... I'm sorry? I'm sorry. You were talking about herd immunity probably, right? Kind of. Kind of, yes. Yeah. Um, but, but, but also specifically what he, and he talked about the data from, uh, from Taiwan uh, because they've done such a great job of keeping that down. They're, they're 100 miles from, from China, mainland China, for crying out loud. Uh, but what they're finding out that is that, that is that the virus passes and transfers from person to person far more um, efficiently indoors than outdoors. The data, I'm quoting from, from, from Horowitz, the data from Taiwan harmonizes with Japanese data that, according to the CDC, shows transmission of the virus 18.7 times greater indoors than outdoors. In a study of 110 case patients from 11 clusters in Japan, all clusters were associated with closed environments, including fitness centers, shared eating environments, hospitals, and the odds for transmission from a primary case patient were 18.7 times higher than an open-air environment. So locking everybody down, young and old, and healthy together in families for extended periods of time is it really the best strategy when the most severe number of cases being transmitted are from family member to family member shouldn't we allow people outside in the fresh air and tell them to actually get out of that quarantine phase well you know we've had all these examples of police for example arresting people in the middle of the ocean surfing in the middle of the ocean or playing <laughs> yeah. in, a, in a i mean it's it's absurd bob i will tell you and i know your 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 listeners uh, have had the same experience i go to the grocery store and everyone's dutifully wearing you know protective equipment uh, gloves and observing the 6 feet separation rule because they've got those lines in the um, the checkout counter but apparently no one thought everyone thinks apparently that viruses cannot travel laterally they can only travel forward and backwards because the next line is right next to you, two feet next to you. It's, it's one of the most absurd things imaginable. A lot of these, uh, with all due respect to people, I think they're doing their best. This is a work in progress. Uh, and even with the Governor DeWine and others, you know, we can forgive the fact that in an unprecedented situation like this, we're kind of feeling our way through it. But I would suggest that, and this is why, one of the reasons why we want to limit government is because government is ponderous and can't adjust as readily as the private sector can. In a situation like this, again, we're feeling our way through it, but we need to go faster. We need to use our brains. We have to understand, for example, that as bad as this virus is and we should treat it seriously, we have not adjusted. I keep harping on this. We simply have not adjusted well to the new facts, not suppositions, not theories, the new facts on the ground. And we're harming the American people as a result. I'm hopeful that the Governor DeWines of the world, I think Governor Whitmer of of Michigan is a lost cause. But, you know, it's, it's interesting. Governor Cuomo, Gavin Newsom, individuals that you'd never expect, I think that they've got a lot more receptiveness to what Trump is doing. They've even praised him um, to the, the shock of the media who's, who's who simply will not 
chair away from the narrative that Trump is evil. But all these people need to make the adjustments and understand that the private sector is smart, it's agile, it can make innovations to deal with this thing, and remember at all costs that as serious as this is, this at this point is no different from a major flu. It's more contagious, it looks like, but even some of the modeling out of, uh, not modeling, but the data out of Germany suggests that it really isn't that much more contagious than certain types of flu and that the morbidity, morbidity rates aren't what they were originally projected to be. We have to start to take those things into consideration and unfortunately too few people are doing it. Again, there's a political imperative involved in that and one of the things I'm concerned about is even if some of these lockdowns are lifted a little bit or maybe completely after a period of time, there's going to be a residual effect because of the... Um, the psychic impact of all of this. We have been led to believe that this is nearly an apocalypse and it's going to take a while before people feel comfortable spending a little bit more money for fear that we're going to have another type of recession uh, or, or economic impact similar to this. They're going to be less likely to go out in public and, and go to restaurants. And, and unfortunately, I hope they do or patronize certain establishments. And that's going to have an economic impact that's going to be long lasting. Peter Kirsten, our last thing before you go. Earlier on, you had mentioned something about my conversation with Mike DeWine, something that I should talk to him about. Let me ask you specifically, if you had one question for Governor DeWine that you could ask tomorrow, what would it be? And I'm asking because I will ask it and give you credit for it. What, what did he base the initial model on? In other words, what data did he look at to come up with that model. I don't think there was any data, frankly. I think they simply came up with a model that had been proven wrong in the past. They used models from the IMHE that, in the past, the IMHE models have been wildly off. I mean, they recalibrate them uh, and other models, but, you know, uh, why didn't he adjust almost immediately upon getting data? That's a great question, and what I want to know, and, and it's going to, I'm going to probably have to dovetail this and make it a two-part question, is, is did those original models include mitigation practices? Because that's the big thing. You know, everybody's pointing out how off all of these models are. The University of Washington model, the IMHE model, all these models are off uh, terribly. In New York and in Ohio and everywhere else, they're off terribly. And they'll say, well, the reason they were so much less is because we mitigated. But Tucker Carlson and others have said no. They know for a fact that mitigation standards were included in the models. So yeah, if they did this, this is what it would be, the best case scenario. If we did mitigate, uh, then you were still as far off as they were. I think that's the second part of that question. Right. Peter Kirsten, outstanding analysis as always, my friend. Thank you very much. Thanks, Continue Bob. Good health to you. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you, Pete. That's Peter Kirsten. Now it's 1049. We'll get our final segment. We'll try to squeeze a call or two in. I know it's tight, and we've been busy with guests uh, this show today, Kurt Schlichter and Peter Kirsten now. But if you want to get a call or two in here, try it now, 216-901-0945, right after this. Oh, my, oh, my. What a busy show today, and we did not even cover all of the ground that I wanted to cover. It's just it, it's really tough in two hours, let's be frank. It's really, really tough to do in just two hours. Let me see if I can get a couple of uh, quick calls in here before we're done. Uh, LaGrange is where we'll go next, or first, rather, and that's Bob. Hey, Bob, you're on the air. Go ahead. Hey, can you dig it, Bob? How are you today? I can indeed, my friend. I'm great. Thank you. Hey, a uh, couple of things I told your call screener. I wanted to talk on uh, preparedness and models. 
Uh, I think your contributors uh, today, Kurt Schlichter and Peter Kirstenauer, touched on it <laughs> quite a bit and kind of took the air out of my balloon regarding models. But let me talk about preparedness, if I could, for just a moment, because I okay. believe that preparedness and the models have got us into where we are today. Would you agree? Uh, yeah, you mean, well, lack of preparedness, quite frankly, and a lack of accurate data, but the, 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 I guess that's what's baked into the models. Ab- ab- absolutely, and that's, right. what I, that's why I wanted to talk about preparedness. <clears throat> Um, let me, this is going to touch on, you know, the 2015 post that you had from George W. Bush and yesterday. Okay, not, not, not too long, though, my friend. I want to get some other people on. Go ahead. Sure. sure. I, you know, what I'd like people to do if they get time is to put <clears throat> these five words in your favorite browser, okay? And it's, um, let me, let me, damn, um, it's Hospital Pandemic Influenza Planning Checklist. Put those in your browser in that order. See what comes up. It's a CDC document, and it talks about preparedness. You know, and, and how I got to that document was, you know, our, our task force, our state task force, had a March 24th briefing where we kind of got introduced to the model, right? But in that model picture, there was a model, there was a, 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 a figure on a, a slide there, and the figure was titled Goals of Com- Community Mitigation for Pandemic Influenza. You know, and it cited a February 2007 CDC report. You know, so that, that kind of let the genie out of the bottle for me, and it talks about, you know, pandemics, how to handle them, how you go about this. And, there, and you know, you can go in and find those, those documents at the CDC website, like them or not. Um, it was filled with a lot of information. You know, it took me a couple hours just to go through and read these. But, you know, in all of those documents, they talk about planning. And this brings me back to this checklist that I, that I offered to people to go look it up. You know, and, and here's a question that if you could ask the governor, hey, was this or any other planning tools used in preparing for the pandemic? You know, well, they- I'll tell you what, I, I'll respond to that, and I will ask him all about planning and preparing for this. Thank you so much for the call and the great points that you're making, uh, uh, Bob. Um, but, but here's what I will point out. Um, there was... There is and always has been an ongoing plan for dealing with epidemics and pandemics. It's part of what the CDC used to be just called CDC, Center for Disease Control. Then it was called CDCP, Center for for Disease Control and Prevention. And the prevention is the planning that you're talking about, right? And so um, this organization is specifically there to prepare for epidemics and pandemics and how to deal with it. And part of that includes building up a national stockpile of uh, uh, possible um, protective equipment and treatment equipment, including ventilators and masks and PPE and all of these kinds of things that everybody has talked about, respirators, etc. So uh, that stockpile of preventative equipment, since you're talking about preparing, that stockpile was really depleted from the 2008-2009 swine flu, the H1N1. And during the eight years of the Obama presidency, that stockpile was never replenished. And, and it's funny because the left likes to go out and say that Trump dismantled or disbanded or whatever or defunded the pandemic, uh, uh, response team, which is a complete and utter lie. That was something that the Obama administration tried to cut it, uh, in the budget from, in five of his eight budgets in his eight years, tried to cut the funding by hundreds of billions of dollars to the pandemic preparedness team. Now, admittedly, Trump also tried to cut funds from it once in those three years, but did not do so. 
It was just a, uh, an early recommendation. So Trump didn't touch the pandemic team. Obama did, and Obama let the stockpile um, deplete which is one of the preparedness aspects of this that we have to talk about going forward. And I will talk about that with the governor tomorrow. All right, that's a long answer to your statement, but we raised a lot of really good points there, Bob. Thank you. Uh, let me go to uh, Brooke Park. Frank, you're on AM 1420, The Answer. Go ahead. Thank you. For Mike DeWine uh, tomorrow, thank you. Uh, you know that Attorney General Yost issued a cease and desist order for chamber, the abortion chamber of Cleveland preterm on March 21st. Okay, and then we had police. People called the police on March 21st, one of our people. And, and then a second one did later in the day, and the police came. So what, what, I, I don't have time for the story, Frank. What, what do you want me to ask the governor tomorrow? Why aren't they wearing PPEs, the guards and the woman that dumps <clears> the body parts in the dumpster of the babies? They come out with, without PPEs. They're not wearing any protection equipment. Number okay. two, a woman had to be carried out on March 21st by the guard to her car. She could not walk on her own. It also happened last Saturday, April 11th. Oh, okay, but, but Frank, I, I don't have time for the story. I don't have time for that story when I talk to the governor tomorrow. I'm gonna have to... Okay, okay, Frank, I appreciate it. Thank you. i got to move on, though, because I don't have time for the long part of the story, so I apologize for that. I just don't, and I won't be able to tell those stories to the governor. I'm just, I'll just talk to him about why the clinics are open and the PPE, but I appreciate that. Uh, let me finish it up today with my friend Will calling from Houston, Texas, listening online. Hey, Will, how are you? Hey, brother, how you doing, man? I'm, I'm Good, a, man. I only have 45 quick. seconds. Go ahead, buddy. Okay, real, real, quick, real quick scenario, man. If, you, if you're on a burning plane and the plane is, is going down, if you have a, a, a parachute that's, that's been tested but not, not completely approved, you don't care if the, the parachute was uh, recommended by Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, or whoever. You, you're going to use whatever you can to save your life. I don't understand why people are trying to downtalk the hydrochloroquine just because Trump mentioned You know, that's, if this is a potential life-saving um, drug, I, I, I'm, glad, I'm glad it's being tested in South, South Dakota. And it, it, the media is making me sick. The way they, they you are one million, per, you are one million percent correct. And, and thank you, Will. And so was the president yesterday at the press conference when he said that if somebody else had recommended chloroquine publicly or hydro, uh, hydroxychloroquine instead of me, it would be, be it would be used all across this country. You're 100 percent right. People are trying to dis- discount it because the president recommended it. That's all the time we've got. Governor Dewine live tomorrow. Be here.